Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Acts 1, 11. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So here is the ascension and with the celebration of the resurrection and then the ascension of Christ, we may conclude that this marks the end of Jesus' incarnation. After all, he accomplished what he came to do and now hasn't he returned to heaven in a disembodied state? At least as a child or as a young Christian, this is the way I pictured it. But is the Incarnation a momentary affair in the life of God in which the Son momentarily alights on earth, you know, maybe 33 years, only to ascend and shed His body and then to take His place once again in the spiritual realm? Unfortunately, this is a common presumption. And it's one that comes with dire implications because it gives us a notion of salvation of the Christian life even that is disincarnate. There's a tendency toward a kind of disembodied, otherworldly, kind of a you know spiritual, inward, individualistic notion of going to heaven when you die. And so this kind of provisional incarnation it really relinquishes the fullness of the incarnate work of Christ, the fullness of its meaning, and in particular in his real-world defeat of evil. And it allows for a provisional evil to reign in his absence. The incarnation of Christ, you know, in which the Creator and the created, the divine and human, heaven and earth and thinking here heaven is the dwelling place of God all of these are brought together in Christ in the incarnation once we get this this should have forever dispelled the division between the earthly and spiritual that is I think typical of evangelicalism and of many forms of Christianity the incarnation according to one early church father Maximus He says it's the explanation of creation. The mystery of the words incarnation contains the force of all hidden meanings and types in scripture and the understanding of the visible and intelligible creatures. The one who knows the mystery of the cross and tomb knows the true nature of these aforementioned things. And the one who has been initiated into the ineffable power of the resurrection knows the purpose for which God made all things. We understand creation through incarnation. We understand what creation really is in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. God reveals himself in the incarnation. 
making of the created order we know from John and the New Testament a fit dwelling for the presence of God. This is the announcement in John. God has come to his temple. God in Christ provides renewed life to Adam and the created order becomes lit up with his glory. As Lewis Ayers describes it, Christians are to see themselves embedded within a cosmos that is also a semiotic system, that is a system of signs, a system of meaning, that reveals the omnipresent creating consubstantial word. With the incarnation, the meaning of the created order comes to bear the glory of God. As Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation in Colossians. By him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. What is accomplished through him, through the incarnate Christ, is not a failed or temporary arrangement. Incarnation completes creation. Incarnation heals creation. Incarnation fulfills creation. According to Irenaeus, one of the earliest church theologians, he was incarnate and made man, and then he summed up in himself, this is language directly from Paul, the long line of the human race. He is all in all, as Paul says, procuring for us a comprehensive salvation that we might recover in Christ what was lost in Adam, namely being in the image and likeness of God. Here is the one who is in the, tr the true image of God. As Paul states it in Ephesians, a parallel passage to Colossians 1.9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. Here in the middle of history is the fullness of history. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things in earth, the Alpha and the Omega. So this summing up of the incarnation is an eternal and ongoing fact about God. As Maximus puts it, the word of God, very God, wills that the mystery of his incarnation be actualized always and in all things. What God is doing in Christ, he's doing throughout creation, all in all, as he says. This is the great and hidden mystery. This is the blessed end for which all things were brought into existence. This is the divine purpose conceived before the beginning of beings. And in defining it, we would say that this mystery is the preconceived goal for the sake of which everything exists, but which itself exists on account of nothing. That is, Maximus says, that it was to this end that God created the essences of being. And so the issue begins with how seriously, how we understand the incarnation. 
And it ends with how we perceive the beauty of God. If we misperceive the incarnation, we'll misunderstand God's relation to creation. And I think we'll also misapprehend not only the beauty of God, but the ugliness of evil. If the incarnation is seen as provisional, then true Christian peace, true beauty, it must be discontinuous with this world as we have it. Yes, you know, we might say the kingdom of God, it will usher in a new world. But if this kingdom is of another order, then so too the salvation, the ethics, the politics of Jesus. That is, the incarnation in this understanding points away from the earthly work of Christ instead of pointing us permanently to that work. It becomes a kind of spiritual transaction between the Father and the Son. And maybe salvation in this wrong understanding is seen primarily as soulish, as disembodied souls going to heaven. And ethics then is made secondary in this understanding. John Calvin says that God is the one who does evil because we need evil. And Christians thus can tolerate great ugliness, great evil, great injustices in the world while simultaneously refusing the beauty of God's glory. That is, I think the two things come to us together. We understand the world is imbued with this beauty in incarnation that then puts evil in contrast to this understanding of goodness. If the incarnation is temporary, as I thought as a child, or it's provisional, then the division between heaven and earth, the transcendent and imminent, the spiritual and material, oh, that must be a permanent division, really in which this world doesn't bear the weight of God. That's a whole understanding, you know, a kind of nominalist understanding in which God's glory really is only contained in heaven, in the imminent trinity. But what we see in the New Testament is God's glory is revealed to us in the incarnation. And by the same token, I think we fail to understand the radical nature of evil. So the world is rendered a kind of neutral gray with only gradations of brightness and darkness while all that is truly good, you know, all that's bound up in heaven in the imminent trinity, and all that is truly evil, well, that just concerns the soul. Embodied reality is rendered secondary. Think of what I'm saying here. The incarnation means that what we do in our body is not secondary, it's primary. Where embodied reality is rendered secondary, that is, what you do in your flesh, one's ethical practices. Oh, that doesn't really pertain, or it's only secondary. There is a division within reality in which the earthly, the embodied, the created becomes secondary. This is happening in the New Testament. James writes against this very problem. Paul writes against this problem. And both the goodness of God and the evil of the world, oh, these are just temporary. These are just provisional. That is just like the incarnation. 
So with belief in this discontinuous incarnation, I think we miss the beauty of God. We miss the incarnate goodness of God. And this is really demonstrated in the history of the church that Christians will tolerate evil and the most profound forms of ugliness as these are, oh, this is just a necessary evil for the moment. It's expedient now that we commit violence, that we allow for war, that we partake of racism. So that the ultimate forms of cruelty, even genocide, have been associated with Christianity gone wrong. Colonialism, slavery, violence, and it's been tolerated in the name of some disincarnate greater good. And so a provisional incarnation means the gospel pertains primarily, oh, we just deal with spiritual things. I'm going to give you a, an example of this bad kind of theology. This is a fairly famous theologian, Wayne Grudem. As he states it, in areas where there is systematic injustice manifested in the treatment of the poor and or ethnic or religious minorities, the church should pray. And as it has opportunity, speak out against injustice. All of these are ways in which the church can supplement its evangelistic ministry to the world and indeed adorn the gospel that it professes. But, he says, such ministries of mercy to the world should never become a substitute for genuine evangelism or for the other areas of ministry to God and to believers. And so listen to what he's saying. Rather than the gospel addressing and correcting wrong in this typical evangelical theology, the gospel, evangelism, and conversion, they're realms apart from the world's injustice. The best one can do, well, we can pray, you know, how many times have we heard that of recent? You know, when a, a tragedy happens. Oh, we might speak out against injustice. But he says to do more than that, potentially will distract from the real work. And it just is a supplement to the genuine work. That is, the gospel is limited in this understanding to a disembodied, soulish realm. And salvation is mainly from the world and not for the world. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And the presumed understanding here, it's a kind of absolute individualism. Oh, some people will escape. And there's a split then between heaven and earth and the divine and human. And it renders ethics and practice, oh, these are realms apart from doctrine and belief. And Grudem makes a point of this. He said we need to separate out our beliefs and our practices, our doctrine and our ethics. The emphasis, he says, of systematic theology is what, on what God wants us to believe and to know while the emphasis in Christian ethics is on what God wants us to do and what attitudes he wants us to have as if belief and practice are separate and thus ethics does not pertain 
directly into theology. As if belief and doctrine are not already a part of a set of practices. And the presumption is, you know, this is kind of Rene Descartes or a Greek understanding, that the soul and body are separate, and thus belief is, oh, that's what I do in my head, that's what I do inside, and practice, that's what I do outside. That's certainly not an incarnational understanding of who God is and what Christianity is. Another problem with this kind of discontinuous incarnation is that sin is relegated to legal transactions, you know, transgressions, and the idea is that Christ has met that requirement. And again, Grudem is the example here. He says we may define sin as follows. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is here defined in relation to God and his moral law. Sin includes not only individual acts such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes God requires of us. That's okay as far as it goes, but with this understanding, sin is not connected to what the New Testament connects it to. The orientation to death or the corporate evil that killed Christ. And deliverance from sin is not connected to the defeat of this orientation. Sin is not related to systemic evil. It's not related to corporate evil. It's not related to what Christ describes in all four Gospels as that sin in which you would save the self, systemic religion. Sin is not connected to the deception in this understanding that Isaiah talks about, that Paul talks about. He calls it the covenant with death. In Grudem's theology, and I'm, Grudem is just a prototype here. He's just an example of an evangelical theology. He may be one of the best and brightest of this form of theology. But in his understanding, it's not related to the devil. It's not related to evil spirits. He doesn't mention that. It's not related to the world of darkness as we have it in John. In other words, it's not related to anything that is the primary focus of the New Testament. Sin is simply understood in relation to God's law and salvation is satisfaction of God's moral character as expressed in the law. And so in this understanding, the cross of Christ does not directly address the problem of evil. In other words, the life of Jesus, his teaching, death, and resurrection do not really figure into the central problem of evil and its resolution. And meanwhile, the problem of evil, which goes unaddressed, is explained, oh, well, that's part of God's plan. After all, you know, Christ himself is murdered and this is part of God's plan to find self-satisfaction. Evil then has its purposes as part of teaching people, oh, they have to endure suffering. And uh, this creates better souls in what is called a soul-making theodicy. Rather than seeing the cross as the challenge and defeat of evil, evil is given its place. 
I think evil may be even a difficult category to discern. Well, God has designed or designated certain persons to rule in patriarchy, in slavery, in racism, in nationalism, in colonialism, so that the gospel can spread. Better to oppress, dominate, and even kill the body, as St. Augustine will say, so that the soul might be saved. Colonialism spreads the gospel. Slavery trains disciples, those who otherwise might remain ignorant. Allowance is made for evil, that through the evil the good may be accomplished. And so the problem is where Jesus' work is spiritualized as deliverance from a legal category or deliverance from the wrath of God. Think of the healing ministry of Christ. How does that fit in? You know, Jesus was quite willing to heal people. And the ministry of healing is a mark of his holistic healing salvation. The historical life and death of Jesus, the incarnation, I'm afraid they're rendered secondary to the real story in this false understanding that is kind of ahistorical and maybe spiritual in quotes here. So Jesus has borne a kind of spiritual and legal punishment and it only indirectly pertains to historical events. The teaching of the New Testament and an observable truth is that belief and practice cannot be separated and that practice reveals true convictions. You want to know what somebody believes? See what they do. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, James says, so also faith without works is dead. There's no such thing as belief apart from practice. This is why it's necessary to think out our convictions in a community of practice. As the fullness of doctrine and the fullness of salvation, they're lived out in community, in embodied beliefs. They're expressed and learned practices, discipleship, that's engendered by the community of the saved. You're not saved apart from the body of Christ any more than one can have a disembodied belief. The incarnation continues and the church is a form of this continuation. Being joined to the body of Christ, being joined to the incarnate one, is not provisional or partial. It's holistic. It's eternal. If we take the incarnation seriously, we understand history is front and center. We understand embodied reality is front and center. But the incarnation, as provisional, misses the eternal defeat of sin, the eternal defeat of death. That's the point. Christ is raised. The ascension of Christ is not an end of the incarnation. It is the idea that he's seated at the right hand of God, the incarnate Christ, and death is defeated forever. Evil is defeated forever. And so to conclude, to know God is to know Christ in the world. We don't know another Christ. It's to know the world through Christ and Christ through the world. 
God has made nature new, including human nature. There is no human nature separated from nature. But he's returned it to its primordial beauty, its incorruptibility, through his holy flesh. And certainly, this is a work in process. We're seeing it unfold. But apart from this joining of humanity and God in the Incarnation, this eternal Incarnation, there is no salvation. There is no renewal. I believe there is no real-world defeat of evil. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.